This is Mark chapter nine, beginning in verse two. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say for they were terrified and a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Dodds, and I'm one of the pastors here. So glad to be with you this morning, and and, uh, welcome to everyone joining us online. We're continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark this morning, and today we are celebrating, as Paul just read, the transfiguration of Jesus. So we we have jumped forward just a little bit from Matthew 6 to Matthew 9, but we're going to circle back and preach through a few of those chapters in the coming weeks. Now, I have a longer sermon this morning, longer than usual. Um, I'm just trying to beat Paul. Um, Now, I'm not not actually going to beat him, but I'm really going to try. So, the transfiguration of Jesus is a significant turning point in the earthly ministry of Christ. Because from this point forward, Jesus' language shifts as he begins to talk more about his death and resurrection. His focus and journey turn to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. And as the church, we remember the transfiguration on the Sunday prior to the season of Lent, a season in which we carry our cross, we mourn our sin, and we long for deliverance as we follow our Savior. And this is something that I really hope that we appreciate as it regards the organization of the church calendar. The season of Lent, these 40 days are bookended by two revelations of Jesus's glory. Right before Lent, we see the glory of Christ transfigured on the mountain, and then right after Lent, we see the glory of Christ resurrected from the grave. So it's, it's, in, the trans, it's in the transfiguration that we get a preview of the glory of Christ, and it prepares us for Easter Sunday when the glory of Christ will no longer be just a pinhole preview, but it will be a a reality for all of creation. So I know that we only have seven verses, but there's so much meaning packed within the details of this account. I'm gonna say too too much. (laughs) So we're we're not gonna get to all of it. And even to help us, we're gonna bring in some details from the other gospel accounts in Luke and Matthew just to help us see a few things. Some of the references to Old Testament stories embedded here are incredibly extensive. It's It's like a Celtic knot. And really, it's just, there's so much going on. Mark is really expecting a lot from his readers, even in mentioning these things. He assumes that we know at least a lot about the lives and ministries of Moses and Elijah. And so that's where we're gonna start. 
with Moses first. So in the book of Exodus, God through Moses redeems the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and leads the people of Israel through a baptism in the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And while journeying in the wilderness for 40 years, they come to Mount Sinai where Moses meets with God. After that, right after that, Israel builds a tent for God called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a mobile home, a a temple, a dwelling place for God. And right over the tabernacle, there was a perpetual pillar of smoke that just represented and manifested God's presence with his people. So that's Moses. And there's also Elijah. Elijah also confronts a tyrant. He also flees into the wilderness. He journeys in the wilderness for 40 days, and then he too comes to Mount Sinai, where he too meets with God. So there's a lot that connects the story of Elijah and the story of Moses. But the point really is this. Elijah was a new Moses. And according to Hebrews 3, Jesus is the greater Moses. So here on the mountain of transfiguration, we have Peter, James, and John seeing Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking to one another. But to put it more, I don't know, just to to get our attention on it a little bit more, they're witnessing a conversation between Moses, a new Moses, and the greater Moses. In Deuteronomy 18.15, it's Moses that teaches us to anticipate a future prophet that will be like him. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And in verse 7 of our text this morning, God the Father speaks out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So let's look again at our text in verse two. And after six days, that's important, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. So Jesus takes Peter and John and James up on a mountain. And in Luke's gospel, it says that they, that they all went up to the mountain to pray. And as that's happening, Jesus' appearance, as we can see here, is completely altered. Matthew 17 says that, that his face shone like the sun. Now, this very same thing happened to Moses whenever he met with God. In fact, his face shined so bright that he had to wear a veil over his face to speak to the people of Israel. However, this this scene is also kind of not like what Moses experienced. Because what we're seeing in our text today is actually radically different than Moses. Moses' face reflected God's light, like a mirror. But light was not coming out of Moses. His face was shining because he had been in the presence of God. But this is very different for Jesus because Jesus' face was not reflecting light. It was not a mirror. It came from inside of him. It came from within him. So Jesus is not meeting with God on a mountain like Moses and Elijah met with God on a mountain. This is what we have to catch here. Jesus 
is the God who met with Moses and Elijah on the mountain. To put it more simply, Moses' face is like the moon and Jesus' face is like the sun. Moses' face was a reflection of light. Jesus' face was the source of light. Okay, so we're on the mountain. Peter, John, James, looking to, looking at and listening to Moses, a new Moses, and the greater Moses. Jesus, who also happens to be God himself. And Mark mentions that Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah, but he doesn't give us any details of the conversation. But in Luke's gospel, we get an important detail. Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was he, he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The word departure here is the Greek word for exodus. What does that make us think about? Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about another exodus that he himself is going to accomplish. And that's partly why he holds counsel with Moses and a new Moses. The God of Israel has taken on flesh in order to lead the nation of Israel out of captivity, out into a new covenant, into a new world. That's why Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. That's why he has turned to Jerusalem is because he's going to accomplish a new exodus, a new and greater exodus. But what exodus is Jesus talking about? It's a good question. Well, Because by, by all accounts, God's people were already living in the land that God had given them. But their, their land was occupied by the Romans. Therefore, they were under Roman rule and oppression, and they were longing to be set free. They were, they were longing Jesus to put down the Romans and drive them out of the land. So they were, what they were really hoping for was a Roman slaughter, not, a, not an Israelite exodus. They had their dream home. They had their dream land in Jerusalem they were living in the place God promised them. They, they were living where they wanted to live. So what is this exodus Jesus is talking about accomplishing? It's an interesting way to put it. It's not an exodus to carry out, an exodus to implement. It's an exodus to accomplish. To help us, to help us let's think back to the exodus that we're most familiar with. Moses' exodus. So Moses was sent by Yahweh to a people who were enslaved by an evil master. Moses instituted the Passover, led God, God's people out of Egyptian slavery, and then at Mount Sinai, he ascended into God's presence on the mountain. And I think that we can see these actions as types of Jesus's crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, all of which take place in Jerusalem. Um, so let's just, let's look at these things together. I have a slide for this, Krista, that just sort of, yeah, there, there we start with that. So first, Moses instituted the Passover and the Passover meal. The people of God slaughtered a substitutionary spotless lamb in order to escape God's judgment. But I think we can see that this is a foreshadow of Christ's crucifixion because he suffered judgment in our place. Secondly, Moses led people out of Egypt, 
the people of God were set free from the oppression and death of Pharaoh, an evil master, and they were given a new life. They were in death and they were brought out into life. And this exit from Egypt is really a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection, which set God's people free from the oppression of Satan, sin, and death. And then thirdly, Moses' exodus, in in Moses' exodus, he ascended into God's presence. And at Mount Sinai, Moses ascended into God's presence in a cloud, and he ushered in this new covenant. And this movement up the mountain is a foreshadowing of Christ's ascension. He ascended into God's presence in a cloud and ushered in a new, new covenant, the new covenant. In Jesus' exodus, he leads us not merely out of slavery to Pharaoh, but out of slavery to Satan, sin, and death. He leads us out of old creation into a new creation, with an old covenant into a new covenant. So let's just think about that again. The crucifixion of Christ, like the Passover lamb, we are covered by the blood of Christ. There is no condemnation for us because he was condemned. The resurrection of Christ, just like Pharaoh was put to shame, the resurrection of Christ puts Satan to open shame. We're no longer his servants, we are servants of the most high God. And the ascension of Christ, like Moses at Mount Sinai, Christ ascends into glory where he sits at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high. See, Moses did ascend, but then he descended. Christ ascended to take his throne, and he is seated there even now. Let that blow your mind just for a little bit. (laughs) That Jesus, fully God, fully man, that a human sits in the throne. Not a spirit, a person sits in the throne. Now, are we still waiting for Jesus to descend? No. And yes. Let's keep reading in verse five. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Yeah, they were terrified. Wouldn't we all be terrified? Okay, so the the word here for tent in verse 5 is another Greek word. Does anyone want to guess what it refers to? Okay, two-week cruise for whoever said that. Um, Who said, yeah, tabernacle, that's great. The tabernacle. Jesus is preparing to accomplish an exodus and Peter offers to build him a tabernacle. Mark is not going to allow us to miss these themes. Peter and James and John have witnessed something incredible. Glory is pouring out of Jesus's face. He's standing on a mountain talking to two of the most well-known Old Testament patriarchs who have been dead for centuries. And Peter responds by offering to build three tabernacles, three homes, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Well, why would Peter want to do this? Because in one way, he's asking them to stay, building a home on the mountain. Let's stay here. Let's never, ever leave. 
But more specifically, Peter wants to celebrate something called the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a Jewish festival that reminded Israel of God's provision in the wilderness and foreshadowed God's ultimate deliverance. They would, they would build booths, little houses, little tabernacles, and celebrate God's faithfulness to his people. So Peter's impulse here to build three houses in light of this glory that he's seeing is actually spot on. He's standing in the presence of Moses, a new Moses, and the greater Moses, and he suggests building three booths in order to remember God's past deliverance and to anticipate his future deliverance. He's doing what he knew to do for the celebration of a festival. And yet Mark says that Peter didn't know exactly what to say because he was terrified. So what is Peter not getting at this moment? He didn't understand that building a tabernacle was unnecessary. John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt in John 1 is the same word for tabernacle. So the reason no booths or tabernacles need to be built on that mountain is because Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the dwelling place of God on earth, and that is confirmed by what happens next. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. See, in order to understand what's happening here, let's, let's talk very, very briefly about the tabernacle, the history of the tabernacle. The people of Israel first constructed the tabernacle after Moses descended from Mount Sinai. The tabernacle served as a mobile temple while Israel was wandering in the wilderness. But once Israel entered into the land of promise and once God's anointed king took the throne, this temporary tabernacle actually gave way to a permanent temple. So here the, the cloud of glory descends upon the tabernacle, the tabernacle that is Jesus. But here's the astounding thing. Peter, James, and John enter into the cloud too. The cloud surrounds all four men. They were not excluded from the presence of God. So Jesus is the tabernacle, the place on earth where all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, but the tabernacle would soon be replaced by the temple. And what, or more specifically who, is going to be the new covenant temple. It's the church. It's us. The people of God are the temple. Brothers and sisters, we are now God's dwelling place and we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Peter, James, and John here are being shown to be fellow cornerstones in a new temple with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. This idea is reinforced following the resurrection. Think, think back to, to Moses on Mount Sinai. After Moses ascended into the cloud, he came back down. He descended with the law written on tablets of stone. When the resurrected Christ ascended, he ascended to take his throne, and he did not descend back down like Moses. So are we still waiting on Jesus to descend? No. 
Just as Moses descended with the law written on tablets of stone, so the Holy Spirit descends upon the church to write the law of God on the hearts of flesh. The Holy Spirit descends on the day of Pentecost and he fills the new temple, the people of God, with the glory of God. Moses ascends and descends to build the tabernacle. Jesus ascends to take his throne and the Holy Spirit descends to build the new temple. The church is the new temple, again, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. I know this is a lot, and there's so much more that we could say. We're, we really are only scratching the surface, and you may be wondering, well, okay, well, what does all this mean for us? Where do we even begin to work out the implications of, of these things? Maybe it's just like, well, this, those are, that's great. That's, you know, those are wonderful insights. Where do we go with them? Theologian Kevin Van Hooser said, the transfiguration provides program notes, as it were, for understanding the whole narrative sweep of Scripture. We talked about Moses, the new Moses, and the greater Moses, but there's also a sense in which Jesus is meeting with Moses and Elijah as representatives of the law and the prophets. In other words, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the, the portion of the Bible written before Jesus. So we could talk about the transfiguration in terms of Jesus, the word of God made flesh, manifesting his glory through the counsel of the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. In Luke 24, verse 27, the resurrected Jesus teaches the Bible to two disciples. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the law and the prophets, the scriptures, testify to Jesus. And when we hold counsel with Moses and Elijah, when we hold counsel with the law and the prophets, when we hold counsel with the Bible, we get to see the transfigured face of Jesus. The Bible actually says this about itself. Peter actually says this. Listen to this. This is astounding. 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. See, Peter's talking about the transfiguration. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see what Peter is doing. He's using the transfiguration of Jesus to defend all of Scripture. He's, he's saying the words of the Bible are not just manufactured truths. 
He says, we, we are actual eyewitnesses to the glory of God. We know that he is truly the son of God and the king of kings because we saw his glory on the mountain. We weren't told about his glory. We saw his glory with our own eyes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul uses a metaphor that I think is important. The veil that Moses wore to cover his shining face is a metaphor for how the Jewish people read the scriptures. The, the Jewish people read the scriptures through a veil, and the veil is only lifted when they interpret the scripture through the lens of Christ. Let's read it here. This is 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 14. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant... When Jews read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. That word is actually transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So just like Moses, just like Moses, all of us here, we can be, we will be transfigured by looking into the face of Jesus and we see his face when we read the Bible. When we learn to interpret the Bible through the lens of Christ, that veil is removed from our heart, from our eyes, and we behold the face of Jesus. According to Peter and Paul, the transfiguration of Christ reveals a new way of reading the entire canon of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The ultimate aim of the Bible has been disclosed to us in the shining, glorious, awe-striking face of Jesus. The Bible is where Jesus is revealed. The Bible is the mountain we climb to meet with Jesus face to face. The Bible is a medium through which, by the power of his spirit, Jesus transfigures each and every one of us from one degree of glory to another. Even these beautiful children stood here before us. So sojourn. I think this gives a lot of weight to things that we encourage each other to do. This means that when we open the Bible at a parish gathering, something incredible is actually happening when we encourage one another to do that, when we, encourage, when we encourage you to come to First Sunday prayer, or when we invite you to a class on reading the Bible, or we pack Sunday gatherings with scripture readings, we, we really are not in any of those things trying to fill your time with optically Christian activity. We want to help you. We want all of us. We want to help ourselves see the face of Jesus in the Bible because that is how people get transfigured. That is how people get transformed. 
we want to lead one another up the mountain of transfiguration. We want, to, we want all of you, we want to, with you, hold counsel with Moses and Elijah and Jesus, with, with other brothers and sisters, old and young, single and married, black and white, messed up, dressed up, all around us. We want you immersed in the Bible. We want you to be washed in the water of the word. Because, and I want you to think about this almost more than anything else I've said today. When you open the Bible, you are looking into the face of Jesus. That's what it means, Lord, I seek your face. I want you to think about that when you open your Bible again. When I open the Bible, I am turning my face to the face of my king. When I open the Bible, I'm looking at my savior as the glory of God is pouring out of his face into mine. And I want you to think a little bit further. Think about what our faces look like when we see something really glorious. Just think about it for a moment when you've seen something truly arresting. Our faces change. They transfigure. You see it in so many places, the, the face of a child on Christmas morning, the faces of long separated friends being reunited again, children welcoming a parent back from overseas parents welcoming a new baby, the, the faces of people at a symphony, the faces of friends around a table in celebration of a birthday. These places at least, and every once in a while we can see this when someone sees something in the Bible that they've never seen before. Oh, that we would have more of that. Oh, that we would be bathed in that. Shining faces, beholding the glory of Christ in the Bible and shining to one another, shining out to the world. All of us here this morning, you, you artists and romantics, you cynics and cold stoics, you optimists and cheerleaders, you hurt, broken, and tender, you strong, stalwart, unaffected, young and old, single, married. All of us, all of you are in need of transfiguration. Sojourn, I'm a, I'm a fearful, angry, insecure man. And I'm in need of this transfiguration just as much as you are, if not more so. I don't want to open the Bible just to preach a sermon. I want to open the Bible so I can turn my face to see Jesus and be transformed. And thankfully, God promises to do that in us by his spirit through his word, one degree of glory to the next because it's not just a glory that he shows us, but it's a glory that he shares with us. This applies to our daily life sojourn. And so if we fail, if we fail to behold the face of Jesus, we will behold other less glorious things because we can't help but behold. Be tempted to behold our own world, 
our, ourselves. And as a result, rather than being transfigured by glory, we're going to be disfigured by sin. When we behold things that are not glorious, our faces will begin to reflect the anger and anxiety and greed and envy and ingratitude of our world, the ingratitude of our own hearts. And nobody wants that sort of disfiguration. In fact, our world is already filled with it. They don't need another place where it is. Ukraine is being disfigured. War like this disfigures our world. Kimberly and I have a, a dear friend in, in Kiev, and she posted yesterday while huddled in a basement with her two children asking for prayer that Jesus would protect them from the bombings. The nations are raging, the kingdoms are tottering, just like Psalm 2, but just like Psalm 2, Yahweh has set his king on his holy hill readying the world for its transfiguration. So amidst all of this marring of God's image, we must behold the glory of God and be remade into image bearers of Jesus' light. We all need and want that transfiguration. We all want to be remade because it's the sort of people that the world needs and that we want to be awestruck, grace-filled joy overwhelmed, transfixed by glory and beauty, not disfigured by bitter, bitterness and angry, anger and anxiousness. To look Jesus full in the face and be remade. So let's pursue transfiguration together in community by beholding the face of Jesus in the word. Let's look long and regularly at the beautiful wonderful, amazing, astounding face of Jesus. And let's show him to others. Let me read this as we close, just a, a wonderful poem. Um, For that one moment, in and out of time, on that one mountain where all moments meet, the daily veil that covers the sublime in darkling glass fell dazzled at his feet. There were no angels full of eyes and wings, just living glory full of truth and grace. The love that dances at the heart of things shone out upon us from a human face. And to that light, the light in us leapt up. We felt it quicken somewhere deep within. A sudden blaze of long-extinguished hope trembled and tingled through the tender skin. Nor can this blackened sky, this darkened scar, eclipse that glimpse of how things really are. The exodus of Jesus was accomplished in Jerusalem, but the exodus of his people is still underway. We have been set free from an evil master, baptized into a holy nation. We have the law written upon our hearts. We have entered into the land of promise. Our king is on the throne and the temple is still being built. 
All the nations of the world are being built into a worldwide temple, and one day the Lord will return to dwell amidst his people forever. One day Jesus will descend again. In that day, transfiguration will give way to resurrection, and the lesser glory will give way to the greater. And until then, brothers and sisters, we open the Bible, we tell people about Jesus, we build the temple, and as we approach the season of Lent, let's remember this preview as we, as we long for Easter. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, who before the suffering of your only son, Jesus Christ, revealed his glory on the holy mountain, grant that all of us, beholding by faith the light of glory in his face and countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. God, aid us to look upon Christ every time we open the scriptures. May we taste and see that the Lord is good by tasting and seeing that his word is good. Help us to see that it is sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. God, as, as one theologian put it, Jesus' words are the kisses of his mouth, which are better than wine. Immerse us in your word, bathe us in it, drown us in it. May we drink it until the room starts spinning and we begin to enjoy you forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.